Tonight we come to our 28th study of the doctrines. And you remember, we're right in the middle of sanctification. So I'll give no review whatsoever, but simply continue, expecting you to have in mind the uh, previous study. Now the Bible does make plain that the process of sanctification goes on until death that we do not come to a place of perfection in this present life. And in 1 John 1, 1 John 1, 8, this is very clearly emphasized. 1 John 1, 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. This doesn't say that a man couldn't say this and... Uh, be a Christian. It doesn't say that. It says that if we say that if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And at this point, uh, we're wrong. And the second chapter, <clears throat> in the first verse, strengthens this very, very much so. My little children, these things write I unto you that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. I may have mentioned this verse to you before, but it's, I think, proper to put it in this particular place, even if we have. And to me, this is a very important verse, because we are called to two, th there's, we're called two things here. We are called not to sin, but to remember if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, even Jesus Christ. And I love this verse. I must say, to me, this is a, a good play. This is a good verse to live in, it seems to me. We are called not to sin. Yet, nevertheless, if we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father. And I think the thing which is particularly striking here is the fact that it's John the saying, we have an advocate with the Father. And this, to me, it seems, is a very, very important consideration. John isn't saying, well, we apostles don't need it. We've reached a point where we don't need an advocate with the Father. We're perfect. He says exactly the opposite. He says, <clears throat> If any man says he does not sin, the truth is not in him. I write these things to you that you sin not. But if we sin, and the emphasis is on the we, if we sin, then we have an advocate with the Father. So John puts himself in the same class as, uh, as we are. And that is, the call is not to sin. But nevertheless, when I or when John sins, we have an advocate with the Father. Seems to me there's a very, very beautiful and total balance here. In James 3, 2, For in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man, and able also to bridle the whole body. So the emphasis here is on the our proneness to sin verbally. Yet, nevertheless, the Bible here in James, James 3, 2, emphasizes in many things we offend all. And again, it is the word we that seems to me to be very important here. So it is James. James says, we offend all. Just as John says, when if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. So James, John, uh, do not, uh, and as we shall see, not remove themselves from this group. They're not saying there are two classes of Christians, those who, who do sin, some of you down there someplace, and that doesn't include us. But each one of these uh, applies this to himself, John and James. 
In 1 Kings 8.46, just a verse that says it so flatly that it's worth, worth reading, uh, although it's very plain throughout the scriptures of the, the fact that we, continue, we are sinners, all of us, and we are not perfect in this life. In 1, jo- in 1 Kings 8.46, For there is no man that sinneth not. And this is Solomon praying in the temple or praying at the dedication of the temple. And in the dedication of the temple, he said, if they sin against thee, and so on, then they can pray to thee, uh, remembering this house of prayer. But in the midst of this, he says, for there is no man that sinneth not. There is no man that sinneth not. And as we have said, uh, John, James, and now Paul will put themselves into that classification with ourselves. And so we read in Romans seven eighteen. There's some that would remove, would make Romans 7 to apply to the unsaved man. But this would spoil the total structure of the book of Romans very completely. This is the saved man. It is Paul speaking. And as we have seen, this is uh, in line with what we have seen James has said and John has said. In Romans eight, uh, Romans seven eighteen, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For the will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would I do not, but the evil that I would not, that I do. Now if I do that what I do, if I do that what I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find in a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another kind of law in my members warring against the law in my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Or this body of death. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Incidentally, that verse should end there. The the last phrase isn't, the last two phrases not included in in the better text. There is therefore now, now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. And then it goes on. So now what we find is here, Paul is saying, Paul is saying, as a Christian, even Paul, he's caught in the midst of this struggle. There is a way, however, in which we can know real victories. It is, I thank God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Then it goes into the 8th chapter and speaks of the power of the resurrected Christ through the agency of the Holy Spirit. However, uh, though we are introduced in the 8th chapter to the wonder of being able, as we shall see in a few moments now, drawing on the finished work of Christ through faith, yet nevertheless that does not stop the fact that Paul keeps himself in the situation uh, where he would say, O oh, wretched man that I am. And this is where, this is where we must see uh, that the, the Bible sa- what the Bible says. The Bible does not tell us that we're going to be perfect in this life. The Bible does not tell us we're going to be perfect in this life any more than the Bible tells us that we will be totally well physically in this life, for example. Something like this. We wait for the resurrection of the body. 
Now, immediately, however, there is a danger in saying this, and I think immediately we must lean against this danger. And that is, when we begin to see that the Bible says that we're not perfect in this life, uh, the danger is immediately then that we grow complacent towards sin and we begin to have a less than a perfect standard in our life. As though because the Bible says we're not going to be perfect in this life, it, it doesn't matter anymore. We can just coast. But the Bible allows us no such place. Uh, if you remember the John, First John passage, I write these things to you that you sin not. This is the standard. And in Matthew 5:48, uh, Christ gives us the standard, which is the only standard which the Christian dare keep in front of him. In Matthew 5:48, uh, be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. And so there is absolutely no standard except the standard of perfection. There is no standard except the standard of perfection. And immediately we ought to understand this. God, God demands perfection. God will always demand perfection. It's unthinkable to think of God writing to us, speaking to us, and saying, well, just sin a little bit. Immediately this is completely out of line. There's only one thing God ever could say to us. That is, you must be perfect. You must be perfect. Now, consequently, we, we find that there are these two elements in the teaching of the Bible in regard to our Christian life. It is not held out to us that we are going to be perfect in this life, and John and James and Paul take their place also here. And yet, nevertheless, the Christian standard is never less than perfection. We're never to be satisfied with less than perfection. We're to ask the Holy Spirit to make us sensitive so that we will be troubled with less than perfection. Perfection is our standard, even though the Bible does tell us that we're not going to arrive to the level of perfection in this present life. Now, therefore, you must be careful not to let either side go of this. The Bible does not say you're going to be perfect, and therefore, consequently, as you look at your own life, you're not to be cast down to odd or despair when you find you're less than perfect. Yet, nevertheless, the standard is perfection, and we are to be sorry and repentant and bring our lives under the blood of Christ afresh when we find sin in our lives. And this is the Christian life. To speak of it in the 20th century terminology, there's a certain tension here, which is proper and right in this present life. That tension will not be there in, uh, at the time of the resurrection of our body, but it's there now. Not perfect. This is the realistic statement the Bible gives us. Yet, nevertheless, the standard is perfection. Not to sin, and yet when we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Now, we have already seen in our study the wonderful and very blessed and happy thing that when we sin, we can confess our sin, bring our bring that specific sin under the finished work of Christ again and be restored. And so consequently, we should be very thankful again as we see the standard is perfection, that when I sin, I can bring that specific sin under the blood of Christ and I, can, I know it is forgiven on the basis of the promise of God uh, and I can go on. You remember we've already dealt with that. But we should also notice that the Christian teaching is not just that we should constantly go on uh, always in the same old round of sin. That's a different thing. That's a different thing. The Bible says, 
that we're not going to be perfect in this life, and yet the standard is perfection. The Bible says, yes, when you sin, you can confess that specific sin and be forgiven. And yet the Christian life is held out in the Word of God is not just a, a, a constant cycle of the same old sins, even with them forgiven and with no ground gained. It's quite something different. The Bible does emphasize that there is to be a substantial victory in the present life. There is to be gain. There is to be progress in the Christian life. And in Ephesians 4, 12 and 13, Ephesians 4, 12 and 13, For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, until we all come in the unity or into the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, it does not say we're going to arrive here in this life, but what it does point out to us certainly is the direction our minds should be leading. We should be edifying each other. The church should be used <coughs> as a unit uh, in order to in order to move toward uh, the standard, it doesn't say we're going to arrive here in this present life, but it does say certainly it tells us what should be in our mind. There is a, there is to be a longing for progress. There is to be a longing for progress, an expectancy of progress. Uh, there, it is a nicely balanced position to see that we are not taught perfectionism in this life. And yet, at the same time, to understand the standard is perfection. In the, sense of, in the sense of the standard, we all should be perfectionists. In the sense of the standard, we should all be perfectionists. And that is, we are to be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. On the other hand, while it is true that, while it is true that our standard should be perfection, in this sense, we should be perfectionists, the Bible says, well, you won't arrive at perfection at this life. But the Bible immediately says, but that doesn't mean you should just be on a treadmill uh, like, a, like a squirrel in a cage that never gets anywhere. The, whole, the work of the Holy Spirit uh, in the whole church of the Lord Jesus should be of such a nature that there is substantial progress. There should be substantial progress. And Second Peter 3.18, 2 Peter 3.18, But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's to be a growth in knowledge and there's to be a growth in grace. So consequently, it is not pictured that we are going to be perfect in this life and yet nevertheless we should not be satisfied merely with always falling into the same old mud puddles. There ought to be some kind of progress. And the thing we should hold out to each other is progress. And we shouldn't, we shouldn't uh, be satisfied uh, with just seeing our brothers and sisters in Christ in any direction, uh, just going on on a treadmill. There should be a real substantial gain in the present life. Now, this is exactly what Paul does point out to us in Romans 8, surely, that as the... Uh, though 
As we point out in Romans 7, he takes his place with John, with James, not saying he's perfect, yet nevertheless he doesn't allow us just to stay there. Wouldn't it be terrible if all he could say is, woe unto me, and wring his hands, as it were? Wouldn't it be frightful if the whole teaching of sanctification ended with a 7.24 in Romans, O wretched man that I am, who should deliver me from the body of this death? That would be a hopeless, awful sort of place to be left. But it isn't this. We are swept on. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then he goes on into Romans 8. And in Romans 8, we're introduced to the concept uh, that the the power of the crucified and the raised Lord uh, can be ours uh, through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the agency of the Holy Spirit. I don't want to do all that too much here in this series of lectures, but nevertheless it must be in our mind. There is to be a substantial gain. A substantial gain. So now then, perfectionism as far as the standard being perf- perf- uh, perfection. Yet understanding we're not going to be perfect in this life. Yet being called on to, to move and not always be running on ice. How can we move? How can we move? Certainly any of us that are honest as Christians must acknowledge all too often we fall into the same old ditch. And we've said happily we can confess the sin as many times as we need to, call it sin, bring it under the shed blood of Christ and be forgiven. But how do we begin to make progress in these areas where we always fall? Because surely we we would find if we wrote down our sins that all very often each one of us have a pattern of sin. We tend to have a pattern. It isn't the same always uh, with every individual, but the, but the individual individual would tend to have a pattern of sin. And how do we manage to, to begin to move? And here, it seems to me, is what we must learn in the Christian, the Christian <coughs> life. The Christian life is not some way of screwing up my own character in such a way as to be able to do better tomorrow. If you notice in this Romans passage, it's, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. The vision, is, as it's given here, is not that uh, after I'm a Christian I have special character. It isn't that I have strengthened myself so that I can begin to run on the ice, so that I can begin to pull myself up with my bootstraps, so that I cease to fall uh, always into the same old mud puddle. It just isn't this way. It is through Jesus Christ our Lord that just as we're justified through faith in Christ, so we are called to live through faith in Christ. And so in Romans 6, uh, 1 through 11, we're given this very strongly. In Romans 6, 1 through 11. And this, the key is given to us here, uh, the key of, of, how to, of how to begin uh, to not always fall into the same old mud puddles, of how to begin to make progress, of how to begin to have the Christian life happily, yes, to be able to be forgiven when I sin the same sin again, but not always just sinning the same old sins. And so we read here, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? You notice, the Scripture always is like this. The Scripture, uh, these, little th- these things are right to you, little children, that ye sin not. The call is, is not to sin. It isn't, we're not given excuses uh, that because we're not going to be perfect, therefore it doesn't matter. It's quite contrary. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin uh, live any longer? 
uh, therein. I think I'll read you the, the, the Greek tenses rather than the King James translation. It'll have more strength. In the second verse, God forbid, how shall we, because, uh, because we died to sin, live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us, as were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him by baptism into death, in order that as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even we also may walk in newness of life. Now you notice, on the basis of our past justification, we are called to walking in newness of life. May walk in newness of life. There is, there is the place for victory. It isn't, well, our eyes are not fastened on feet. And the scripture deals with us like this. When, when, we meet it, when the scripture meets me down in the mud and I am weeping, it says, don't cry. Don't cry except for being sorry. Just come and come to the cross again and you can be forgiven. Don't cry. All is not spoiled. On the other hand, on the, other hand the, the call of the scripture is not to get down there. The call is that there is to be victory. There is to be that we may walk. We may walk in newness of life. And that's very different. And that's the way we should treat each other, too, incidentally. We should treat each other when we find somebody down in the mud. Yes, they should be sorry. But now it's not to push them lower. It's to say, don't forget, the blood of Christ can forgive, can give you cleansing if you're sorry and you bring it under the blood. But when we're talking with each other and walking over the mountains and down over the valleys of life, in the easy places and the hard places, we should be speaking each to each other about the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, wherein there may be victories in this life. So when we find ourselves or somebody else in the mud, then we're to, to point to the cleansing of the blood. But the pointing to the cleansing of the blood is never to be an excuse to just keep falling into the same old mud puddles. There should be growth in the Christian life. There should be victories. And this uh, fourth verse is str very strong. Um, Even so, we also may walk in newness of life is a may here it is possible to walk in newness of life not always be down in the same old place for if we have been united together in the likeness of his death we shall be also in the likeness of resurrection knowing this that our old man was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be made powerless that henceforth we should not serve sin so the call is the understanding there is a may in the present life. It is possible to have victories in the present life. For he that is dead is free from sin. Now if we, we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once for all. This is wonderful, one of these wonderful once for all passages. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. And then comes the call, and this is where I would end here. On this basis, likewise reckon ye yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And you remember, uh, remember exactly... Uh, this uh, carries on to the end. It's a continuity here into the seventh chapter that I've read to you. I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Well, how, how are we to move? This isn't just to be a pious expression, as you will notice here. It isn't a calling just for a religious feeling. It is the very opposite of merely uh, um, an existential experience. 
It is the very opposite of merely a religious sensation in a darkened cathedral. We are called in the present life to know something of these victories, but not on the basis of our own strength, but on the basis of the finished work of the Lord Jesus, the resurrected Christ, through the agency of the Holy Spirit. But how do I get hold of this? How do I get hold of this? What can it mean? And the 11th verse tells me again in this 6th chapter, Likewise reckon ye also to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And the reckon is a word of faith. It's a word of faith. So the call here is a life of faith, just as Christians became Christians by faith. And we are to, we are to live by faith just as we became Christians by faith. It is not an entirely different fabric, but it is the same fabric. Having become a Christian by faith, uh, having been justified by faith on the basis of the finished work of Christ, and begin, I'm, beginning, I'm to begin to live a different kind of a life, to know some victories, even though I won't be perfect, but to know good and substantial victories in progress. Uh, once again now in the same way as I was justified and that is on the basis of the finished work of Christ through faith I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord reckon ye yourselves reckon ye yourselves we should be partakers of the power of Christ's life that henceforth we should not serve sin so we must always say the two things quickly and with no, no period in between them. No, the Bible doesn't say we're going to be perfect in this life. Yes, the Bible says that we should, we should know victories and we should not serve sin. Now the Bible tells us that we have a, the Bible tells us that we have a communication with the whole Trinity through the agency of the Holy Spirit in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 13, 14. 2 Corinthians 13:14 The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ the love of God the Father and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all amen Now the text doesn't say God the Father it says God but it obviously is God the Father The word communion here is really a sense of communication so we're told here, here is the whole Trinity and the sense of our being indwelt by the Holy Spirit as we've already talked about being indwelt by the Holy Spirit is not to be a theoretical thing. It is to be an abstraction. It isn't to be a merely doctrinal thing. There is to be communion with the whole Trinity through the agency of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Now at this particular place I would remind you of our previous doctrinal studies in this series on the new relationship we have. That when we've accepted Christ as our Savior we're not just justified but we have a new relationship. That we stand immediately in a personal relationship to each of the three members of the Trinity. And the Bible never pictures our relationship with God as mechanical. There's no room for a mechanical relationship with God. God will not accept a mechanical relationship from us. God is personal, and we are created in his image. So there is to be no mechanical relationship at all. And there is to be a legal relationship. This is perfectly true because God has a character, and we must be justified before we can come to him. We, our, our, uh, our guilt must be, must be expiated through the finished work of Christ. So there is a legal relationship but it's not primarily legal. And a long while away from here in another series, uh, I'll be talking about this. The, the fact that it's not never mechanical and not primarily legal, although there are legal aspects, but it's to be personal.
a personal relationship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. There is a legal place, a legal circle, but the call is not to a, not finally to a, uh, a legal relationship. The call finally is to uh, a personal relationship. Now then, here, here I am. I am Francis Schaeffer. If I have accepted Christ as my Savior sometime in the past, whether it is uh, a long time ago, as in my case is longer ago, a shorter time ago, as with some of you, and if somebody only would accept Christ as his Savior, uh, had accepted Christ as Savior in this lesson night, maybe it's only two minutes ago, let us say. But nevertheless, uh, I am justified in the past. And then Francis Schaeffer is justified in the past. God the Father is his Father. He's united with Christ and he is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And this relationship is spoken to me in the Bible absolutely, and it is given to me as a statement of fact, and it is told to me that uh, this relationship with God is personal and it's a vital relationship. It's a vital relationship. The Bible tells us that this threefold relationship uh, with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is a present fact. And it tells us this fact just as much as it tells us the fact of justification or the fact that if I have accepted Christ as my Savior, I will be in heaven. And it says this just as flatly. Do you believe, do you believe those of you who are here in this room or who will be listening to this, these studies on the tape, do you believe really that having accepted Christ as your Savior that you are a child of God? Do you believe this? Do you believe it? Because the Bible gives this as a fact. Just as it says, if you have accepted Jesus as your Savior, you will be in heaven. There's no distinction here in the sense that it tells you both. It tells you both. So the first thing to fasten our mind upon is just the way we're, we have assurance of our salvation. We can have assurance of our salvation because God makes us a promise. He that believeth on the Son has everlasting life. This is a promise. If I have accepted Christ, I have everlasting life. God says so. If I have accepted Christ as my Savior, I know I will be in heaven. God says so. But nevertheless, God equally says this concerning the present life. God is my Father now. I'm united with Christ. I'm indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And it is possible to have this personal communication with God now. So the first thing to see is this doesn't depend on a feeling any more than the assurance of our salvation depends on the feeling. The Bible never begins this way. The Bible always deals with the whole man, including the rationality of man. It makes us a promise. It puts that promise in a good and sufficient framework and then says, here is the fact. Now act upon it in faith. But the call is always first upon the knowledge. And then after God has given us the knowledge, then comes the call to act in faith. Not the other way around. Not the other way around. Now then, often you find a Christian, although he's saved, he has no assurance because he just doesn't lay hold of the promise of God, as we've seen in our study of assurance. But it's the same in the Christian life. God tells us that it is possible to draw upon the strength of the crucified and the risen Lord in the agency of the Holy Spirit by faith. It tells us this. Now, just as a Christian may be saved and yet not have the assurance of his salvation because he doesn't lay hold of it in faith, so it is possible to have access to the victorious Christ and not draw upon him through faith. In both cases, it is the same. It is possible to be saved and yet not have the assurance because we don't act on God's promises in faith. It is possible to be saved and be indwelt by the Holy Spirit, have access to the victorious Christ, and yet not lay hold upon this in faith simply because we don't 
raise the empty hand of faith and accept the gift. Consequently, as we begin to talk about the Christian life, the first thing to do uh, is not is not to begin to shout at each other. Uh, where's your Christian character? The first thing to do is not to shout at each other. Well, uh, come on, uh, tighten up here, pull up your socks. It isn't something like this. It isn't something like this. It is the other direction. Is this, don't you understand the promise of God? The Bible doesn't say you're perfect. The Bible doesn't say you can do it now in your own energy, in your own zip. That isn't what it says. But the Bible makes you a promise. The Bible makes you a promise. Christ is your Savior. Christ is victorious. Christ is risen. Christ is glorified. Don't you understand? This is a promise just as much as the promise that if you accept him as Savior, you'll be in heaven. Well, this is God's promise. Won't you act upon it by faith? Won't you begin to believe God? So a really Christian call to the Christian life is never a call to a man acting on the basis of his own character. It is always a call to begin to raise the empty hands of faith in regard to the Christian life, looking to the finished work of the Lord Jesus upon the cross. It's entirely the opposite. So it doesn't say you're perfect, but it says your standard is perfection. It says, oh, you, will, you won't be perfect, but nevertheless, you're not supposed to always be down in the old mire. But you say, how do I get started? And we've seen in Romans, reckon yourself. Lay hold of this by faith. Lay hold of this by faith. So therefore, first we must intellectually realize the fact of our vital relationship with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then in faith, begin to act upon that realization. Now at this particular place, for those of you who, who are especially perhaps moved at this point uh, I would re suggest that when you get home that you open your Bibles again uh, I mean your notes and look over again our study on the new relationship after we have accepted Christ as our Savior which we had uh, back in a previous lesson now in Ephesians 3 14 through 19 it reminds me that the question is not my own strength it is not my own strength that counts. In Ephesians 3, 14 through 19. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man. Now this is what, the call, this is what Paul would pray for us. That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, in order that we might be filled with all the fullness of God. You notice our eyes are not turned upon ourselves at all here. I, our eyes are not turned upon ourselves at this point any more than our eyes would be turned upon ourselves if, if he was speaking to us as a lost man. If I come as a lost man, I say, Oh, God, be merciful to me. I, I'm a sinner, and I see I'm undone. There's nothing in Scripture that turns my eyes upon my own goodness. The Scripture turns my eyes upon the finished work of Christ. When as a Christian, I say, But I'm running on ice. I can't seem to get going. Then God doesn't. God doesn't point to me. He doesn't say, well, look at you, Schaefer. You're pretty good. It isn't this direction. He says, no, look away from yourself. The secret's not in yourself. The secret is in, in Christ. 
In 2 Corinthians 12.9, Paul expresses this very strongly. In 2 Corinthians uh, 12.9. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I, will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And that's a beautiful word. A beautiful word. And this is for, regardless of what he's speaking about just before this in the context, this is for all the Christian life. It's in everything. We are, our eyes are turned away from ourselves. Our eyes are always, 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 in the scripture, turned objectively away from myself. It is, my, eye, my eyes are always turned away from myself to the finished work of Christ my relationship with the Father, with the Son, with the Holy Spirit. My eyes are turned upon the finished work of Christ upon the cross. And if someone is saying, but I'm so glad I can be forgiven, and that's beautiful to me because I need it so often. But nevertheless, I get, I get down because I, I just do seem to stay in the same old mud holes. Well, the answer is, take your eyes away from yourself. Be thankful you can be cleansed again. But take your eyes away from yourself and begin to realize what God has promised you of if you have accepted Christ as your Savior, uh, your relationship to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That the finished work of Christ can mean something to you. That you can draw on the victorious Christ upon this and begin to act upon it in faith. Now in 1 John 5, uh, 5, 3 through 5, and you remember... Uh, in a way, in a way, this passage I've just given you in Second Corinthians 13:14 and all that, in a way, uh, it would maybe have been better if it hadn't been there at this particular point. I think it should be there. But nevertheless, in a way, we're right back at Romans 6, 1 through 11. Reckon ye the call to faith in Romans 6:11, and we have the same emphasis of the of the faith in First John 5, uh, 3 through 5. 1 John 5, 3-5. Very, very striking and, and I think overwhelming passage and very helpful <coughs> to me. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. For whosoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, I've told some of you before, but I've mentioned it again, that there were, there were years when I, I never preached on John 5.3 after I was in the ministry because I didn't understand it. I just didn't understand it. Nobody had ever taught me to understand it. No, all my study, nobody had ever taught me. And I read this thing, and this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. And I just came to a dead end because I found his commandments very grievous. I found they were grievous in the morning and then they were grievous in the afternoon and after that they were grievous at night because I kept breaking them. And it was just a constant tripping up curb, as it were. And, and as a pastor, as a younger pastor, one who wasn't so younger, younger either, uh, I just had a problem with this because nobody had pointed out to me that the solution is immediately in the next verse. And I'd never seen it for myself. And then one day it came to me in my own struggle since I'd been in Europe. And it was like turning on a great light to me. For whosoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world. Our faith. 
That's the secret. And it is not faith in a in a vacuum. But who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the basis of all true faith. It's it's a contentful faith. It's a faith of who Jesus is, and then Jesus finished work. It's a faith of who he is as the eternal Son of God, the second the second person of the Trinity, his person, and then his finished work. And on this basis there can be victory. On this basis, our faith. Our faith. The Bible doesn't picture it as a strength of character. The Bible pictures our living by faith as we were saved by faith. And if a man tries to save himself on the basis of his own, uh, his own goodness or his own work, the Bible makes very plain he will spend his eternity in hell. On the other hand, if he acknowledges he cannot and moves in faith, looking, acknowledging himself a sinner and raising the empty hands of faith, he can come to, he can come to God through Jesus Christ covered with Christ's shed blood, his finished work. It's exactly the same thing here. How do we overcome the world? How is it that his commandments are not grievous? Well, because it doesn't depend upon myself. If I have to try to keep the least of the commandments of God, especially when I take into account the comprehension of motivations and so on, if I have to, if I have to do the least, try to keep the least of the commandments of God uh, on the basis of my own strength, they're grievous indeed. But when I understand this isn't the way, you don't have to keep them yourself. Then they're no longer so grievous. And you can be them. So it is the the door, the door of living the Christian life, uh, just as the door of becoming a Christian, is not my character. It is, uh, or my upbringing, or my family, or any other thing. It is my, uh, it isn't either heredity or training. It is something else. It is, the basis of this is to be uh, the finished work of Christ. The instrument to lay hold of this is my faith. And once I see that, suddenly the doors begin to work up. Suddenly, no longer are the commands of God so grievous. Because I'm not trying, to, not trying to do it just by myself. Now, this isn't the only place where the emphasis is, is upon the Christian life to be lived on the basis of faith. It isn't the only place at all. In Romans 1, 17... We have the same thing, and for a good many of you who have um, a good many of you who have who are taking this, doing these doctrinal studies, you have already studied the Book of Romans. You should have if you're taking these studies in the proper order, the introductory study of the Book of Romans, and so this verse will be very much in your mind. One seventeen. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And with it, of course, the 16th verse, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ is the power of God uh, unto salvation to everyone that believes, the Jew first and also to the Greek. But this word salvation isn't just becoming a Christian. It's all the aspects of salvation. The present, I mean the past, the present, and the future. What is the power of God unto salvation is the gospel of Christ. And how do we walk in this one? For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. This does not say, this does not say just that we become a Christian this way, but it's the way we are to live. Just if we became a Christian this way, we are to walk this way. It isn't just that you become a Christian by faith, but the just shall live by faith. 
It isn't that you're just justified by faith on the basis of the finished work of Christ, but being justified, the justified ones shall live by faith. Shall live by faith. And in 5.2, where he begins to deal with a Christian life, uh, because the, this is in the book of Romans, he begins to deal with a Christian life in the fifth chapter. By whom? That is, through the Lord Jesus Christ. By whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. How do we have the access? By faith. We have the access in the present. And you'll remember, those of you who have taken the Roman studies, that the, the, text, the tenses in the Greek run like this. Therefore, being justified in the past by faith, we have peace in the present with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have in the present access by faith into this grace wherein we stand. So the two things are brought together here. The, we are to become a Christian by faith, but we are to live by faith. And surely it is a victory of the devil when he can drive a wedge into this concept as though we are saved on the basis or on the basis of the finished work of Christ by faith and then we're to live the saved life in the energy of the flesh. And the Bible says no, not at all. Not at all. Now Paul deals with this in a special way in Galatians uh, where the Judaizers said, well, you must, you must go on and carry out these fleshly works such as circumcision. And Paul waved it aside. But it isn't just such a thing as circumcision that Paul waves aside. It's the whole concept of living uh, somehow in the flesh after I have become a Christian only on the basis of the finished work of Christ and by faith. How are we going to live the Christian life? How can we begin to, to run uh, on the ice, as it were? How can we begin not to always have a cycle of the same old sins, no victories, always falling, thing I don't want to do, find myself doing it? How can it be done? Well, it isn't looking to myself. It's through Jesus Christ, my Lord. This is the way. There isn't any other way. There isn't any other way. You can put this down, and it's a, it's a hard saying, but it's true. That many people who achieve certain things merely on the basis of their own character do it just in the flesh, and it isn't a Christian thing at all. It's just one more thing that's of the flesh and of pride. And in 1513, 1513, Christian life turns our eyes toward living by faith. Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. How? Joy in believing and peace in believing. There isn't any other way. You notice how this is a double thing here. It's a very striking one when you analyze it. Now the God of hope fill you with all joy in believing and peace in believing. That's what it says. That's the way there's to be joy and peace in the Christian life. In Ephesians 6.16, Ephesians 6.16, Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye, are, ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. There isn't any other way to quench the fiery darts of the wicked one. Don't think that if you've been a Christian for 50 years, you're going to be able to quench the fiery darts of the evil one simply with all your own energy. That isn't it. You'll never be able to do that. It's the shield of faith that quenches the fiery darts of the evil one. This is the way. And in Colossians 2.7, Colossians 2.7, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, 
Now, many commentaries, including Meyer, uh, says that he thinks this should be, and I think he's right entirely, it should be translated by the faith. It's in line with the other passages we've been seeing. Rooted and built up in him and established by the faith. I think that's exactly what he's saying here. How are you going to be rooted in him? How are you going to be established? Only one way, by faith. It isn't, it isn't the, uh, any other way. 2 Timothy 3.15 2 Timothy 3.15 And from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Now this word salvation here surely is more than merely becoming a Christian addressed as it is to Timothy, the young pastor here. It certainly is the same sense as Paul uses salvation in the first part of the book of Romans, and that is the present salvation. How? Unto salvation, through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. This is the way. And in uh, Hebrews 4.2, we have a very striking passage. Hebrews 4.2. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them which heard it. Now, this probably is speaking of, of uh, justification, one might say, but it doesn't matter because the way it pictures it here is very helpful in the life of faith. Because it's the, uh, the best way to read this is like this. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. But the word of hearing did not profit them because they were not united by faith, and then so on. In other words, what it's picturing to us here is that it is faith that links us to the promises, and it's faith that links us to the power. Just as it's faith that links us to justification. We can hear Christ died upon the cross and his death is sufficient for you. And we can hear this and be deeply moved and we can comprehend something. But it, as it says here concerning the Old Testament Jews, it doesn't do them any good unless they were linked to it by faith. And that's the way it is to all the promises of God and specifically the way it is to what we're talking about now and that is the Christian life. We must be linked to the promises by faith. And so I would just picture it like this. I would picture that here you have, here you have, uh, and for those of you listening on tape, I'm making a circle with one finger, and here is myself, I am this circle. And then here are the promises of God, and it's another circle. And there are two solid circles now, and there's no way for them to be tied together. No way at all. Two solid circles. You can think of it instead of my fingers, which could be opened, you could think of it as two iron circles or two brass circles off a, off a carousel, if you ever got yourself a brass circle off a carousel. And here are two circles that cannot be, that you can't get them together. You can push as hard as you want. Nothing happens. But if you take a third ring and link them together, they're linked together. And that's exactly what faith does to us. We hear the, pro here am I, and then I hear the promises of God. But how, how do these things become real to me? How are they linked to me? Only one way. They're linked to me by faith. So when I believe God at any of the promises, any of the points, promises, not just believe God into the void, but when I believe God at any point 
of his promise to me in his word, then it is like a third link that just snaps together over myself and the promise of God and ties me to it. Now that's exactly the picture here in the book of Hebrews that we have just seen, and it is the, the, the biblical picture of the usage of faith. I, hear the pro- I must hear the promise of God because faith isn't enough in self. It isn't just Kierkegaard's jump into the void. I hear the promise of God, but what does it mean to me? Nothing. Nothing. Unless I'm linked to it by faith. Now that's true for a man becoming a Christian, but it's also true in the, ser- in the place where we're struggling with and thinking of the present time, and that is the Christian life. Do you hear these promises of God? Do you hear the promise that Christ is victorious, Christ is ascended into heaven, and Christ is glorified? Do you hear that it's possible to have victories through Jesus Christ, our Lord? Do you hear that it's possible, as we read in Romans, Romans 7, in the 7, beginning of, and, and in 8, the beginning of 8, that it's possible to know something of the power of the crucified, raised Christ in your present life so you don't always go sloughing through the same old mud puddles? Do you hear this? What does it mean to you? Nothing. Not a thing if you just hear it and walk away. But as soon as you believe the promises of God, you raise the empty hands of faith, then it's like this third ring that comes and snaps you together with the promise of God. And then something occurs. Then comes forth the fruit and the promise and the blessing. So in understanding the understanding how to, to begin living the Christian life and to live the Christian life, it's, it's wonderful that once I sin, I can bring that sin under the shed blood and be forgiven. But I'm not always supposed to just slough through the same old mud. But how do I get going? Well, I, on the basis of the finished work of Christ, I believe the promises of God. This is the point. In 1 Peter 1.5, the same thing. 1 Peter 1.5 who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. This says you're kept all the way to the end, but it's the same thing again, through faith. Kept by the power of God through faith. Here it's a very special kind of thought carried right to the end, but it's also true of all the parts. How is there to be the power of God unto me? Through faith. It isn't mechanical. It isn't mechanical. In Revelation 12, 10 and 11... A very, very striking passage. Revelation 12, 10, 11. I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now has come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. And they overcame him by the power, blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony and they loved not their lives even unto the death. But you notice how they overcame him. There's only one way that anybody's ever overcome to the devil. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. There isn't any other way. There isn't any other way. The Bible does not say, the Bible does not say, now you're a Christian, now go ahead and Aren't you strong? Flex your muscles. Boy, look at you. Aren't you terrific? That isn't what the Bible says. The Bible says, how were you saved in the first place? Through looking unto the finished work of Christ and accepting it through faith. The same thing is true now. How are you going to live the Christian life? You've got to live it the same way. Don't look to yourself. 
you look to yourself and you say, I've made it. I'm just sure as you live, you're flat in your face again. And somebody has to begin poking the mud out of your eyes. It isn't this way. Do you want to know something of overcoming the devil in those temptations wherein you have your special weakness? There's only one way. It's by the blood of the Lamb, through faith. Now, at this particular point, though I would... You'll hear it again in the next series of studies. I would give you here five areas of ignorance. Five areas of ignorance whereby Christians often are ignorant as as to how to live the Christian life. Five areas of ignorance of things they are not told and therefore not knowing it, they cannot act upon it. Because in the Christian faith it's always the same way. You are told something and then you can act on it on faith. You must be told it first. Five areas of ignorance. One, many Christians are taught how to be justified 